Welcome back to another episode of Scouting for Growth, the podcast where we explore the crossroads of fintech, insurtech, health tech, the future of work with the leaders who are shaping it. Today, we have a guest who is nothing short of a fintech phenomenon. If you have ever felt that the rulebook for management was written in a language that today's leaders can't quite speak, you are not alone. Our guest today not only felt that way, but decided to write her own lexicon for modern leadership. Meet Emily Citrian, fintech powerhouse, seasoned leader, and the author of Make Me the Boss, a transformative guide and toolkit for millennial managers navigating the new complexities of leadership in our current social climate, a world defined by COVID, hashtag BLM and hashtag me too. Emily is a true catalyst for change, disrupting not just how we transact, but also how we lead and manage in an ever-changing world. From her days at Unicorn Startup, to her insightful takes on inclusion, diversity, and combating imposter syndrome, Emily is not just talking about the future. She is building it. Indeed, from serving as a key figure at Stripe to co-founding her own consulting firm, Yield, Emily has been at the forefront of game-changing initiatives too. Now, if you're a senior leader, let's say you're a CEO, a CTO, a CDO, this episode will resonate with you. We will explore topics ranging from fintech disruption, emerging trends, female founder dynamics, and even tackle what is fundamentally broken in big tech. So sit tight, because we are about to get to go into a deep dive into how to boss up in the fintech world. And before we dive in, if you find value in today's episode, make sure to subscribe, download and rate Scouting for Growth wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us keep bringing you the insight you won't find anywhere else. All right, let's get started. Emily, welcome to Scouting for Growth. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me on Scouting for Growth. Hi, it's really good to be here. Very excited to have a conversation. Yeah, I'm excited too. Partly because I actually want to kick off our chat, Emily, uh, with you sharing about your your fintech journey, right? You you actually work for one of the you know largest and very well known unicorn in this world, and so would love to hear about your journey uh, from you know early age maybe to the fintech world to where you are now. Absolutely, you know I think a lot of people in my generation have had this similar experience where you kind of in your early 20s, you think I'm going to be a do-gooder. I'm going to go and do big climate change things or big, you know, political, social things. And then you kind of realize, oh, the way to actually 
maybe make change pretty quickly is to work in the technology fields because overnight you can make an app you can see how you know thousands millions of people change how they work live and exist uh, due to technology yeah. and I think coming of age, especially a time where um, mobile phones were first starting to come out, cloud computing, I mean, you could just see so, wow, this is a really tectonic shift. And so I graduated from Berkeley in 2010. Oh, goodness, it's been a while now, and went right into healthcare technology. Um, which in the United States is an extremely challenging field because mm -hmm. our healthcare system is a little bit odd. A little challenging, yeah. Um, but but through that, really did see how much of a difference technology could make. And so, I spent about a decade in various uh, roles, specifically in client implementation type roles, um, in different verticals from construction. Did a couple stints in healthcare, and then ultimately, in the past couple of years, have realized I think my true passion and true kind of North Star within tech, which is fintech and payments. I mean, who would have thought it's financial technology, but it's so interesting. And spent the past couple of years at Stripe, as you alluded to uh, in our in our first um, moment here. Uh, so I was at Stripe for a couple of years, um, was actually laid off in uh, late last year, 2022, just in case someone's listening this far in the future, doesn't know when last <laughs> year was. <laughs> um, and then decided, you know what, it's time for me to really take my own entrepreneur steps. It was a, a forceful shove into the world of entrepreneurship. And so I'm now CEO and co-founder of a payments consulting and integration firm called Yield. And I'm also, incidentally, an author of a of a book for first-time millennial people managers. That's super cool. So I want to dive into two parts, um, uh, uh, two areas you just mentioned, which is first, you know, falling into fintech. You know, I am in fintech, but I tend to focus on insurance technology. And I have to confess, Emily, I thought payment, payment, payment. This is really boring. Tell us why payment is exciting, actually. Um, because when I look at FinTech, I thought it's just about payments. What can you do really with just payment, right? There's only payments. Uh, so I think it would be nice to dive into uh, that frame and maybe my limitations. The, the other part is being laid off, right? Because, you know, we all heard about the Great Resignation and also the Great Depression over the past two years, where... You know, people have decided to make career moves um, and sometimes didn't have a choice. But a lot of us have moved now into fractional roles or building, you know, their own organization. So it would be great if you could tap into those two different buckets, because I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear about it. Absolutely. So I'll start with the payments question. Why is this so interesting? So to me, I think that payments have been largely considered, payments technology specifically has largely been considered to be a commodity. Yeah. Okay, you're starting a business, nonprofit, school, whatever, whatever you're starting, you've got to be able to accept and give payments. And so it's almost like a check the box. Okay, I'm setting up my email. Okay, we have to figure out how we're going to accept a payment. And so I think for, for a couple of decades, it basically was that, you know, there are very large companies that that's kind of all they did is, you know, you're going to, you're going to need a payment solution. Okay. You open up an account, you take your credit cards. Great. So I think it really is in the past 10 to 15 years that payments, the payments layer of the entire FinTech 
stack from payments to accounting to accounts receivable to reconciliation to tax, ultimately the payments layer has now become more of a strategy rather than something that is an afterthought. And so if you think about large international firms or even small firms that you know want to sell a product outside of their, you know, kind of home community, which is, I think, most entrepreneurs at this point, thinking about, well, how would I accept a, you know, a British pound? Or what would I do if I had a customer in China that was trying to, you know, use WePay? Do I need a, a bank account in China? Do I need to set up, you know, some sort of payment gateway? Do I need to find someone on Upwork? So all of these questions, I think, are, are coming to a head, and especially in the past couple of years with everything that's gone on with the economy, um, I, a lot of companies are thinking about how do we optimize this particular front door of our entire revenue cycle. And so as an entrepreneur myself, I see just a huge amount of opportunity in being the world's experts in how, how do you really think through and, and Im implement a payment strategy. So. So that's kind of why why payments. Um, now it's interesting that you know within the fintech world, your specialty is is more on the insurance side. I see these kinds of things actually converging because at, at the fu fundamental level, it's all about risk and managing risk. And payments yes. is a lot of risk, as we know. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot more uh, crossover between the two uh, in the next decade. So we'll, we might have to come back and talk about that later on. Um, but then in terms of you know the trends in the working world over the past couple of years it to your point it's been we went from the great resignation to all of a sudden this huge round of layoffs within two years i mean it's like total whiplash so i think from the from macroeconomic cycle perspective i think it's very normal these things happen when you know labor has a bit more power when times are good capital has a bit more power when times are tight interest rates all of that kind of stuff and we're just kind of seeing that play out a little bit but from a demographic perspective i actually think there's a little bit more going on which is that my generation and younger which is kind of like millennials and then like the the kind of older subset of, of Gen Z are coming into these management roles in corporate America. And so the dynamic in the workplace is shifting quite a bit where younger generations are now stepping up and becoming mm -hmm. the, the frontline manager and, and, and beyond, you know, director and getting ready for VP roles. And I think there's, there's certain qualities to the millennial and Gen Z generation that are just really shifting how, how everybody works. And I think some of that is, you know, during COVID and, and all the kind of weird economic stuff that was going on, I think a lot of people did think like, what do I want to spend the next 40 years of my working life doing? Do I want to be doing nine, nine to five work or do I do I think that there is more to maybe value and how much utility do I put on, you know, having having a great, you know, 401k if there's things like climate change and kind of social upheaval that are that are just feel more real and more present to me. And so I think my generation's reconciling with how you bring those two things together. And and we we haven't quite seen it fully play out, but but I'm very fascinated by all of it. Yeah, interestingly enough, um, you know, going back to payment, um, you know, when you look at my career, you know, I've been in consulting myself and I've worked and built programs, so acceleration program. And, you know, the payment strategies, you know, five to six figure, uh, you know, invoices, usually you do not need Stripe, right? It's a bank transaction, it's an invoice. However, you won't believe, but three months ago, 
I decided to set up a course with um, a number of my my colleagues, couple of colleagues of mine, uh, which is all about empowering women and empowering you know young entrepreneurs to own their personal identity. And you know, for that, I'm not charging you know six or five figures uh, numbers. And I had to discover Stripe actually, and um, well, I had to discover you know getting a bank account which allows automatic payments, right? To create the web page and all those things because I never had to do that before. And then I discovered Stripe because actually it was one of the few options which accepted a business like me, which didn't intend to do it forever because I have a dual business model. And um, it was interesting because then you start realizing that there is this world of monetization that potentially my industry do not always really understand how it works. Besides, uh, and I'm going to be careful about what I'm saying, because if you're actually doing just small premium you know, of insurance, yes, for sure, you probably use Stripe. But when you do transformation and actually doing big programming and doing consulting, maybe you don't. And so that opened up a completely different world that I didn't know, actually, three months ago, Emily. Yes, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people think through that. And, and it's funny enough, because what you set up in the very early days, then becomes very entangled with all of your kind of downstream systems and can be hard to disentangle as you scale. So um, I, I'm with you. It's, it's something you want to put a little bit of thought and a little bit of strategy into um, as you're as you're starting out on your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about leadership. Right, because um, you've worked for Unicorn and you have worked for a number of companies even before Stripe. And now you're on this journey where you are yourself an entrepreneur and helping other businesses with their payment integration strategy. So has it been for you to move onto this journey and enable others such as millennials and Gen Z to be empowered as well while they're working with you or while they're learning about all it uh, that encompasses. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. I think if somebody had told me I would eventually be an entrepreneur, I, I would have laughed, you know, even a, maybe a year ago, which is kind of embarrassing now. I, I always have loved working with within really big companies doing really big things. Mm. And I loved rubbing shoulders with VPs and executives. And I very much saw myself, you know, climbing that that corporate ladder uh, myself. Um, and, and so it's funny how life works. I think getting getting laid off showed me how ultimately um, kind of unstable that that can be. And um, it also it also put me in a position of thinking, um, a, I never want to be laid off again, ever. And really the only way to truly ensure that is to, to become an entrepreneur. But it also made me think really logically. And I, and I spoke with a lot of people in my life about this very honestly, because I, I wanted a good opinion. Do I have what it takes to be a CEO and a, and a co-founder of a company? What concerns would you have? Would you come and, you know, work for a company that where I was, you know, your your CEO? And, and I got really good perspectives and, and kind of, answered a lot of those why not, why not me, and then decided, okay, I'm going to do it. The worst thing that can happen is you fail. Failing at a company, it's not a big deal. It's okay if it doesn't work. Um, and and so, you know, I, I found a co-founder and that was very, very important to me. I know, you know, 
myself well enough to know that I do work best in teams. And so the timing and finding a co-founder where we spent a week together, you know, in, in Airbnb in Los Angeles, like, how do we work together? What's our values? What's our personal financial situation? That then for me was like, okay, we're, we're definitely going to do this. I think I would, I would regret not, not trying it. And almost immediately we got the the signal from the market and the validation that, okay, this is going to be a good idea. You know, we got some solid leads, solid connections. I think we launched the company January 5th and we had our first, com- we had our first large customer January 24th. And I know that's unusual. I don't want to say, Hey, if you're an entrepreneur and you don't get your first customer in two weeks, it's not going to work because that's not true at all. Um, but I think for us, it was just that very early signal that like, Oh yeah, this is going to be a thing. And so it's a little bit strategy. It's a lot of execution yeah. and it's, it is timing as well. Yeah. So, yeah. There's no shortcut. It's just hard work. Um, no, no, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. But one thing you actually are highlighting, you know, which I often talk about and say to those entrepreneurs that work with early stage entrepreneurs is that, you know, when you look at success within the startup world, you know, there are a few ingredients and you have already mentioned it. timing is crucial. It's not always about technology, right? I remember the the times where everybody was talking about blockchain and blockchain did not do a thing in, in my industry, which is insurance. Um, and so I was meeting all those blockchain startups and then I would go and ask the corporate to say, yeah, yeah, we'll look at it, but, you know, we'll not do anything about it. So therefore you realize you would actually do not want to waste the time of the startups uh, actually to meet the corporates because then there is no commercialization. But then also it's about, um, you know, being able to run a business properly, as you said, having the values and the goals, which are critical to build long lasting businesses. So the strategy, but also it's about, you know, how you you manage your finances and how you manage yourself, your co-founder culture. Sorry, I was just thinking about the word culture becomes also critical, but then it's all about execution. And I think when you look at the quadrant of success, um, you can do strategy, but strategy with no execution or no demonstration of one's ability to implement and get it done quickly, partly in our world, is 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 very difficult, right? It's unlikely to, to lead to success. So I think it's very important to highlight that. But you, as a female founder, so how do the dynamic with your co-founder works and um I mean, what you would recommend to female founders? Because, you know, we still have a major gap in the market with trying to get more female to become CEOs and founders of companies. Absolutely. So I think that women and underrepresented groups in particular do have a lot of we have a lot going for us when it comes to in general positions of leadership, but in particular now as a founder, I I'm, I'm shocked that there's not more of us mm-hmm. because I think a lot, a lot of the things you inherently learn as, as coming up in the world as being underrepresented are incredibly powerful assets to leverage. So I would say, you know, it is unusual that my co-founder and I are both women. We realize that that's not why we started the company it's not why we gravitated to each other but i think a lot of the qualities that we've learned and gained in our identities over the years come up so we both come from immigrant families we are both um you know don't feel fully represented uh, within our industry as you probably well know fintech in general is extremely male um very white um 
it's changing though. It is changing. And so I think in particular in my female identity, where I feel like there's the most opportunity is being able to, I'm going to say this may be a little bit controversial, but I think we're able to set aside our ego a little bit more easily than some of our male counterparts and be able to recognize more quickly when a decision that we've made is the wrong decision and we need to fix it and reverse it or when the business strategy that we're executing isn't working. And so being able to say that was the wrong strategy, let's pivot over here or over there. And I think that we're able to move through that decision more quickly and more gracefully. And so I would encourage people that are listening to this and thinking, is that me? It, it probably is, honestly, if, if this is resonating with any listeners. And so I think that aspect is really powerful, where I think we all need to do a better job of is trusting ourselves and not second guessing our, our strengths and our intuition. And so I know for me, I sometimes think, oh, I, I feel that imposter syndrome like so severe. Like, like, who am I to be sitting in this sales conversation? Who am I to be leading this huge team? And then I have to think, oh, I'm totally capable of this. There's no logical reason why I cannot do this. And so I think that's a little bit of a privilege that sometimes um, male counterparts have is, is you maybe grow up kind of just always feeling very capable. Yeah. Um, I don't always feel capable. And so I have to <laughs> kind of counteract that uh frequently. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's interesting that honesty, actually, because, um, you know, talking to a lot of young women, um, not always, you know, founders, but often working for corporations, or even coming out of university, trying to work out what their path is going to, to be, you definitely have this imposter syndrome. And also that CV challenge where one wants to have all the capabilities which are uh, listed on the job application. And if you have all the competencies, well, what are you going to learn? And so when you look at our male counterpart, like they look at 30%, yeah, I can do 30%, I'm fine, I'm going to apply for it. And so there is this like mindset, right? Where I think one, maybe because of history is usually the one, you know, with the, the spear and trying to, you know, hunter gatherer and the other one much more nurturing, I don't know, uh, but they need to be changed. And they need to be, um, uh, I mean, ability amongst female founders and and women in general to feel that they can do the job as well as our male counterpart. And I think we are going towards that, right? And you talk about it. I think I was listening to uh, some of your podcasts as well. Uh, manager flows and you have them as a conversations, right? Where you're actually talking to managers and young people and millennials where you're trying to unpack some of those things within your dialogues as well. Absolutely. So I, I think that the imposter syndrome, my personal take on it is that you shouldn't completely make it go away because I think showing up with a little bit of humility and a little bit of awe of where you are in your life and how far you have gotten. Yeah. I think that shows a lot of respect to, to the space that you're in. Mm-hmm. And I think it keep, keeps you a little bit grounded. So <laughs> that we've all seen people that kind of like go over, they become way overconfident and just this hubris and, and that, that ultimately is not, you know, copacetic to a good business decision. So I think if you're feeling it, keep it with you in a little corner because I, I think it will it will 
keep you just grounded and 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 humble and and I do think those are those are important elements to being successful business as well yeah I also read about you about the you know the me too and the BLM movement hashtag hashtag um they are movements and so how do you feel that you know fintech leaders could integrate these principles within you know what they do every day to drive more diverse and inclusive environment at work absolutely so i i definitely think that it is the responsibility of folks that are on the front lines of these leadership positions to be and encompass the change that we want to see in the world i've worked with so many companies that have probably very well intentioned um you know big kind of dni initiatives you know the hr team is doing you know a cultural awareness day those sorts of things but ultimately it's the people that are operating the business day in and day out that are making the most impact and so i feel like having a general awareness of it in basically everything we do uh, as leaders is what's going to be the most important And so it's everything from who are you coaching to who is in your personal network. Does everybody that you engage with look like you and come from the same background? Uh, when you go out to hire people, are you just looking to make hires from your college or you know the the company that you were last at? Or are you creating a hiring process that is truly equitable and that is appealing to people from different backgrounds? And yeah, it takes work. It absolutely takes work. Then there's no shortcuts here either. But I think collectively, this is what it's going to take to level the playing field in the way that I think is probably important to all of us because ultimately a more diverse business environment makes more prosperous and profitable businesses and there's no reason why we can't all move forward together with broadly shared prosperity and if we're if we're not including large sections of the general population in our successful businesses we're all really missing out yeah absolutely i mean it it, re it reminds me you know when we talk about sustainability and you know for sure for sure an overused term and then we we think about esg um and the s of esg social sustainability or social innovation you know i think we, we are quite well versed around environmental what weather risk we see it every day we've experienced it during the summer from wildfires to flooding across the globe and still are experiencing it right now but you know there's still work to be done on the social front either within organization around how they are recruiting and how they are um, dealing or leading um, with a senior leadership uh, to how we are really responsible around representing our customers so emily tell me what got you to write make me the boss what was the underlying principle for the book Absolutely. So I had had this book in my mind for quite a few years. And, and the first thing that happened was, you know, I'd kind of been through a few manager roles at various companies uh, within Silicon Valley in the tech world. And, and I saw a lot of first time managers making the exact same mistakes that I was making. And I just thought, man, I should write the book that tells you what to do and what not to do, because I see it over and over and over. And then finally, one of my friends got promoted and asked me for a book recommendation and I realized 
okay, it's time. I got to write that book. And so, so I started the book, which was extremely tedious. I think a lot of authors uh, are not fully honest about the fact that writing is not fun. Um, it's pretty brutal. And so <laughs> <laughs> it was especially rough because I was writing about like literally what I was doing. So I would show up to work, do a good job some days, a bad job other days, but then didn't matter at you know, five or 5.30 PM, I had to start writing about it. And so it was like, man, I was just working. I was just thinking about these things all day long. And, and so then I think what happened is in 2020, uh, of course, I think we all remember uh, the, uh, the very unfortunate death of George Floyd and, and sort of the after effect of the Black Lives Matter movement really exploded. And I think everybody was thinking about what can I do in my corner of the world? Mm-hmm. I can't change systemic racism, you know, by snapping my fingers. But what is what is something that I know where I can make an impact? And so I realized that that was the fire that got me to finally finish the book was I think that within my sector of the world, tech, mm-hmm management, there is a lot that we can do. And so I'm going to put that into the book about how, A, to be a really good first-time manager, but also how to use that position of power and influence to create change that ultimately is going to help tackle this problem as well. So I I finished it in 2020, published it in 2021, accompanied it with a podcast, as you've mentioned, Manager Flow, where I just talk with various managers at different points in their career. And was really surprised that the reception was very good. I I thought it was going to be a little bit more controversial than it ultimately was. Um, But I think a lot of people read it and felt really connected to it because it was sort of written for, you know, my generation. And it it speaks very honestly to the time in history that we're in. It's not kind of these old recycled leadership principles that we've all heard and and are very good, but it's it's a fresh look at it, I think, from a younger perspective. So I'm, I'm quite proud of it. Yeah, congratulations. I mean, and it's important because I, I had a recent experience where, you know, I've read and I'm fortunate, you know, working with big tech and big companies is you get through a lot of training. And I went through all the sales training you can imagine, which tend to be really lengthy processes. But then I met this gentleman, uh, Gary uh, Garth, who wrote uh, the zero to 100 million sales blueprint. And it is for startups. It's very, you know, down and easy. And I thought, you know, we need more of those. Well, So let's just make sure people know that they should read your book to actually have a fresh perspective as to how to run their lives. Which takes me, Emily, to, from your point of view, what are the fundamental areas which are really broken in big tech or, you know, that are industries, fintech or financial services needs to address. And at the same time, I'd love for you to give, you know, some maybe recommendation to those millennials out there as to how you have implemented some of those techniques. One of them, I think you call it BSPEN method to performance review. It would be great to hear a little bit of takeaways and lesson learned from your experience. Absolutely. I think that the the process of bringing on first-time managers at every place I've ever worked is so broken. I think that we we put people who are at the top of their game as individual contributors into manager roles and think they're going to be great at this on day two. 
they are not. It is a very different job to be a people manager than it is to be a rock star individual contributor. And I think the the individuals themselves also kind of have that expectation. Why wouldn't I be good at this? I was the best salesperson on my team, or I wrote the most code on my engineering pod or, or whatever it is. And so the training to become a manager is very different and, and very neglected. And to your point, I think it, it focuses on kind of very important structural things, like how do I push the buttons I need to push to pay people or approve time off or, you know, there's these like operational things. And then there's leadership principles, like how do I improve my communication and, and things like that? And all very important, but the day-to-day is not that. The day-to-day of a manager is dealing with escalation after escalation after escalation, empathy, 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 representing my team to other departments, managing my new manager and what expectations should I have for them, managing down, you know, my team, especially if they were just my peers, they're going to have a certain expectation of me and and I'm going to want to step into these roles and go and, you know, break down doors and make their lives so much better because I was just in that role. And all that pressure creates burnout. And so I see, I see a lot of new managers. It's like four to six months in just burnout because you're trying to be all the things to all the people and you haven't created the stakeholder relationships and the peer relationships that you need to either in your professional or frankly, your personal life, your personal life does shift too, when you become come into these roles and that, that takes some time to adjust. So I think that is a major breakdown in corporate America and big tech and not really supporting managers as they move into these roles, particularly in the millennial and, and younger generations. So the the method that you that you mentioned um, is very specific to performance reviews. Mm-hmm. And performance reviews are I think one of the most special times you will have with your team. Gone are the days where somebody's going to work at the company for 10, 15, 20 years. You probably get them for two. Yeah. And as their manager, maybe you get them for one because reorgs happen. Come on, let's be real. Every six to eight months. So I, in my book, really work with managers to think about what is the story, what is the narrative that you want to communicate in a way that sets this person up for not just success in the actual role that they're in, but in the type of person that they want to be and in the goals that are important and meaningful to them. And maybe there's, there's, I mean, there's actually absolutely going to be tactical feedback where it's like, okay, you know, Joe from accounting said sometimes your reports are a day or two late. Like that's, you know, what that needs to end for example, but it's thinking about what are you really trying to do and trying to be here? Where is this all sort of going for you? And what's the feedback and coaching that I can give you that helps you get there? Yeah. And maybe it's like, okay, these reports are late, but is this really a time management thing? Or is it a, you don't understand why these reports need to be on time and all the downstream effects, or is it an expectation setting communication? Hey, I can't get to these reports this day because I don't have the data this day. And so it's it's really going a few layers deeper and, and working with the person on that level. And I've personally had really good results from it. And so I, I just wanted to share that method with as many managers as possible to just make it a really positive experience for everybody. Yeah. And and I think I, I heard you talk about creating an intentional for life. Do you mind going into what that means for you? Because I think 
it's not just when you're an entrepreneur, because I think we're more cognizant when we're entrepreneurs that we have to work that work-life balance, work-life harmony. But I think intentional full lives can start early. And I'm, you know, very grateful that I can work around authentic personal identities with a lot of people right now, where they are trying to align who they are as individual with the work they are doing every day so that there is full congruence. But that for me is still aligned with what you call intentional full life as well. Yes. So I think there's a major shift going on. Well, it's not just, I think I know there is. So I think historically, a lot of people have gotten their you know, sort of social, emotional community needs met in a variety of different ways. You know, you had your job, but then you're probably really active in your church, synagogue, mosque, what have you. Maybe you were a part of you know, some community organizations, um, you know, the, the Masons or the what have you. So demographically, that has shifted quite a bit. And so younger people are not very active in those structured they are not they are not and so for better for worse and i i don't know if it's good or bad but it just it is a fact that that younger generations are looking to their workplace for more of that sense of identity community and demographically speaking younger people are also tending to you know live with roommates longer not get married as as young not have kids until you know mid to late 30s that's be, just becoming much more normal and so in addition to that there there isn't that kind of nuclear family unit as as much with with younger generations and so again the work people are looking to their workplace for a lot of that and so as a manager that's just the reality of of the situation is you know your team member is looking to you to to help them understand you know who they are and how they relate to their their role in the workplace uh, and and that is of course going to bleed into their personal life yes. so it's just it's just it is what it is and so i think in the course of giving feedback in a performance review i think it's very important to be mindful of that this is a whole and complete person that is showing up to the workplace with a certain expectation that that it is going to give them a, a sense of self and a sense of belonging. And so speaking to the whole person and, and everything that they're kind of bringing into it is important. At the same time, you can't be their therapist. You maybe not even really their work coach. You can be but that's kind of a different role, right? And mm-hmm. so part of it is is having those boundaries and being able to say, this is the limitation of, of what I can really be for you. And for a lot of first-time managers, I think they put their whole self into it yeah. too much. And you get, that's another reason there can be, you know, burnout is you're, you're trying to be all the things to to all the people on your team. And so it's it's a delicate balance. And, and I think one that i have definitely not mastered myself, but, but I do write about it and give some very practical tips to, to be able to create a really fulfilling experience, but also, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first. That's super. I mean, it's interesting because think about how we're working right now. We are remote work here, you know, remote hybrid, but most of us probably remote now. And so I wonder how we can create that balance today um, Emily, when you know a lot of the young people who are working with are working from home as well today. Yeah, you know it's very interesting. There's all these kind of return to office 
mandates and initiatives. Um, but I think Pandora is out of the box. I think we, we <laughs> the reality is, is we are going to be in a hybrid environment. Um, going back to the diversity conversation, ultimately, I think it's better for diversity because I think when you can hire people from um, different cities and, and different, you know, zip codes, I think it, it, definitely um, opens up the the candidate pool yeah. in a way that I think will ultimately be good. So I'm a big advocate of, of hybrid personally. Um, but how do you, how do you still create closeness, sense of community with a distributed team, with a remote team? It, it is challenging, but it's not impossible. And we know it's not impossible because we know people form very meaningful relationships online. I mean, just watch 90 Day Fiance. <laughs> You can get yeah. a very, very intimate relationships without ever actually meeting. So, um, <laughs> so I think you you do have to be a bit more intentional about it and a bit creative. So, you know, if you're working with different time zones and, and things like that, you obviously need to be mindful. But, you know, just silly things like sharing pictures or or getting you know a piece of chocolate sent to everybody. And all right, let's all get on Zoom and try this piece of chocolate together. I, I think those things um, are are very important. Um, but I think also from a manager perspective, it's important to develop a camaraderie with people yeah. outside of your designated time because you're not going to be running into them, you know, mm -hmm. getting coffee or, or getting water. So I think it's important to intentionally create a sense of connection, whether it's, you know, a Netflix show you both are watching or some kind of food you both like or just just something that you you can chit chat about outside of your designated more formal one-on-ones. And and I do think it is on the manager to, to kind of reach out and, and proactively create that little bit of just, you know, banter. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So as we are arriving toward the end of our discussion, Emily, could you impart some closing word of wisdom uh, to our listener? What is the one message you want aspiring leaders uh, to take away? from this conversation? Yes. So I I definitely need to say, uh, please go buy my book. It's on Amazon and your local <laughs> bookstore. <laughs> and it will be in the notes of the, you know, the podcast as well. <laughs> so I think that you don't have to be the perfect leader to be the perfect leader for the moment. So many things are changing in the world. It is unstable. It is an uncertain economic time. The pace of technological change is unreal. Unreal. Think about where we were 20 years ago mm -hmm. and think where we are now. None of us know what the next 20 years will be. None mm -hmm. of us know. But because we came up in that and we're stepping up to the plate may, puts us in the history books in a way that I think is so important right now. So Believe that the timing is right for you, if you're listening to this, to step up into this role and be the leader that your team and, frankly, your community needs to usher us into the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, thank you for those wise words, Emily, and thank you for making me the boss actually. And I think we are going to call this episode, episode Bossing Up right with Emily um but thank you very much for joining me and if people were going to find you where should they go yes I'm quite active on LinkedIn so look me up Emily Citrian you might have to check the notes for spelling it's a tough last name and I do have my own website as well emilycitrian.com 
Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you for joining me on Scouting for Growth. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine van der Linden. Thank you.